This morning we're going to be looking at Genesis 49, and since we do have the Pew Bibles back, it's on page 42 in the ESV Pew Bibles, Genesis 49. We're going to take the whole chapter, all the blessings, and then the record of Jacob's death. So Genesis 49, 1 through 33. Please join me in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit as we open your word this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds and hearts. Teach us the the true meaning of this passage. Help us to apply your word in our life on a day-to-day basis. Father, we trust the work of your Spirit to open our hearts and give us understanding this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember how old you were when you realized that there were such things as personalized gifts? Maybe you were at an amusement park or or something like that, and you went into the gift shop and you saw the the keychains or the hats or the, the mugs and it had people's names on it and, and your excitement you went and you found your name there it was you could buy something that had your name on it or maybe you saw an adult walking around with the initials monogrammed on their on their shirt and and maybe you have one of these personalized gifts right now maybe your keychain has your initials on it maybe you have a mug with your name on it uh, one of the more personal uh, gifts that's often given at weddings is a personalized uh, welcome mat or personalized door knocker or something that has the, the couple's last name and then it says established in and it says the date of their, their wedding. Those are nice to get. Those are personal. Perhaps the most personalized gift I've ever seen was something that, that uh, was custom made. It was a t-shirt given from one friend to another friend and it had both of their pictures on it, their names, And it said summer of and whatever the year was. And then it listed all the different places that they had been to and they'd experienced that summer. You know, best summer ever with my best friend ever, something like that. Very personalized. In Genesis 49, we're going to see some personalized blessings. Some very personalized blessings. Patriarch Jacob is at the end of his life. He's gathering everyone around for the final fatherly blessing. And he brings them together and gives them, one by one, a personalized blessing. These are not general blessings. This is not one size fits all. They're uniquely tailored for each son. Some of these personalized blessings are almost predictable. I think we can see some of them coming. I'm probably not going to raise too many eyebrows when we read some of these. Others are a little surprising, and we'll talk about why. And then there's one blessing that's exploding with extreme language. It surpasses all the others. I wonder if you can guess which one that is. But here's the thing. They're all personalized. They're, they're uniquely tailored for each one of the sons. In fact, each one has their name on it. They're personalized. These blessings give us a picture of God how God operates, because we know that each one of us is going to receive a personalized eternal inheritance, a personalized eternity from God. They're going to be unique and suitable to us. 
God already has our name on it. So this passage shows us that God deals with each one of us personally, and in Christ, he deals graciously. So God deals with each one of us personally, and in Christ, he deals graciously. So let's look at this passage and hear all these personalized blessings. Starting at verse 1, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shores of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be a siding. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father, who will help you. By the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessing of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. 
There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Our passage begins with the the phrase, gathering yourselves together. So once again, this is the patriarch Jacob. He's nearing the end of his life. He, He knows it. And he's going to pass out the fatherly blessings. So he gathers them around. And then it says that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So that lets us know that these are also prophetic. They're not good guesses. They're not later additions to the text. We kind of crossed this bridge when we were in Daniel. If you remember in Daniel, the prophecies were so spot on, so accurate, that it prompted many critical scholars today to say, well, they just can't be actual prophecies. They're too accurate. They must have been somebody later who came in and wrote out exactly what happened to make it look like he prophesied it. No, they're not later additions. These are prophetic words. We believe in a God that is able to reveal what is going to happen ahead of time. That's why it's called prophecy. So it's, it's prophetic blessings that reveal the future, what's going to happen next. Verse 2, listen is repeated. He wants them to pay careful attention to what he's going to tell them. And even though they're all gathered together as one family, even though we're all all together, all sons, each one is given a unique blessing that is personalized. In fact, if you heard that in verse 28, it says, uh, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Personalized. Well, let's start. Verse 3, the blessings start with the birth order. Uh, Reuben was the firstborn. After that, they kind of jump around. So we don't follow the birth order throughout the whole passage. But we do start with Reuben, who is the firstborn son of Leah. And the blessings start off on on kind of a positive note. Listen to the language. My might, first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and power. And at this point, Reuben may have been starting to relax a little bit. You know, he may may have been saying, oh, well, that's that's not too bad. That's actually pretty good. Um, You know, maybe he forgot about that thing that I did with, with Bilhah. But then we realize it's a description of what Reuben should have been because the hammer falls in verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So no, Jacob had not forgotten about the thing. Uh, sleeping with his concubine in an attempt to secure power and status. If you remember when we we covered that. It didn't get a whole lot of uh, space when during the actual event, but here it is. It pops up. Our actions have consequences. And then even the, the last line, he went up to my couch. Jacob speaks to him in third person. This is a way of, of further distancing, distancing himself from, from his son and saying, I, look, I don't even want to talk about you with your name right now. He went up to my, to my couch. It was as if he's some kind of stranger 
Now remember, these are prophetic. And so sure enough, Reuben, uh, the tribe of Reuben, settles in the promised land. Now they settle on the east side of the Jordan. And if you remember, uh, the majority of the tribes end up on the west side in between the Jordan Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. But there are a few that settle over on the east side. This is one of those that settled on the east side. So they were prone to more attacks from you know, invaders and enemies that were outside of Israel. And so that's where they end up. And we really don't hear from this tribe anymore. They don't really play a leading role in Israel's history. Uh, they, don't, they don't take point on anything. And in fact, we don't have a prophet, judge, or king ever come from the tribe of Reuben. So these words are prophetic. Verses 5 through 7, Simeon, Simeon and Levi, you're up next. Now, after hearing Jacob's words to Reuben, these, these guys might have been getting a little nervous because they also had a thing in the past. They slaughtered all the residents of the city of Shechem, if you remember that. Very bloody, very violent event. So if he hadn't forgotten about Bilhah, maybe he hadn't forgotten about Shechem either. Sure enough, he hadn't. Weapons of violence are their swords. In their anger, they killed men. Cursed be their anger. So he, he wants to, again, distance himself from, from that uh, unwanted uh, bloodshed, willful violence. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. The, the census, is in, census in Israel uh, during the book of Numbers reveals that, that Simeon was the smallest of the tribe. And uh, also, if you look at those maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see that Simeon is actually inside of Judah. They kind of get absorbed, and eventually, you know, it just becomes the southern kingdom. So they kind of disappear in terms of allotment of land. And then the tribe of Levi, Levi never received an allotment. You remember, this is the tribe that's been set apart by God. Uh, Joshua 18.7 says, The priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. So remember, the Levite tribe doesn't get a, a, an allotment of land. They don't get kind of this home territory. Instead, they're scattered throughout um, because the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. Verses, seven, uh, verses 8 and 9, Judah. We remember Judah. This is the one that had a child by sexual immorality with his daughter-in-law who was posing as a pagan prostitute. That's, that's the one that we're talking about. And it's hard for us not to imagine him kind of standing there with his eyes closed and his teeth gritted, just saying, all right, let me have it. I see what happened to the first two or first three guys, and I know what I did. And then we hear these words, your brother shall praise you. And then the rest of it is just as good. What happened here? What happened here? If the first three got those negative words, why did Judah not get similar negative words. I mean, after all, um, you know, he, what he did wasn't commendable by any means either. Well, the reason is we don't see Reuben or Simeon or Levi confessing or repenting or anything recorded in Scripture to let us know that there was some kind of uh, remorse or heart change. In fact, when the Simeon and Levi are rebuked by their father, remember what they did? They defended themselves. They said, well, should we just let our sister be treated like that? We, we did what we thought needed to be done. It was kind of this attitude of, well, what? You're telling us that this was the wrong thing to do? There was no repentance. But with Judah, we see 
a contrast we see when he was confronted with his sin, he confessed it and became humble. Remember those words, he said, she is more righteous than I. When he was hit in the face and confronted with what he did, he said, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the one at fault here. She's more righteous than I. And then he left. He left that, that territory. He left his pagan friend. He left the pagan uh, harvest festivals. He left the pagan cult prostitution practice. And he went back home, never again to go back. So we see a humility and a heart change and repentance. That's the difference. And then the rest of the words, your brother shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down before you. He's given him preeminence over his brother's authority. The same bowing down that Joseph experienced, now Judah's going to experience that. Why? Because from his tribe, from his descendants, are going to come kings. The line of Judah would produce King David, and of course, ultimately, Jesus. That's why he's compared to a lion, strong, dangerous, deadly, dominating and conquering his enemies. That's the kind of king we want, right? Strong, dominating and deadly. That's the kind of king I want. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter means kingship. And then you'll see the next line, it says, until tribute comes to him. And then there's a footnote in the ESV, and it says, until he comes to whom it belongs. If you've got an NIV, I think it says, until he to whom it belongs shall come. If you have an ES, or a KJV, a King James, it says, until Shiloh come. So we've got a lot of different options here. And just even from that, I think you understand that when you've got a section or a phrase or a verse in the Bible with footnotes and you've got three different options and they're all very different. Something's going on. And, and you're right, something is going on. So let's just take a, a brief sidestep. I want to explain it and then, then we'll keep moving. The reason we have those very different interpretations or different translations is because in the original language, which was written in Hebrew, um, it can be taken a couple different ways. Let's take the first one. Uh, King James Version, until Shiloh come. Until Shiloh come. So in the Hebrew, those consonants are there. The consonants to spell the word Shiloh, the proper noun, which is a city. But it's not spelled like it is in other places in the Bible. And so that gets us little suspect right off, right off the bat. It's, it's not spelled like we see it in other places, which makes us think, eh, is that really Shiloh? And also, what does that mean, until Shiloh comes? It doesn't really fit. It doesn't have any meaning that would be related to the context. So, kind of iffy on that one. Then there's the, the footnote in the ESV, until he comes to whom it belongs. Um, again, in the Hebrew, we've got, for that particular word, we've got three, three consonants, but it can mean that, it can mean Shiloh spelled differently, but also it could mean until or which to him. And often in Hebrew you have to supply a verb to be, so it is, so it would be like which is to him. And that's why we get the translation until he comes to whom it belongs. So the scepter is going to remain with Judah and it's going to remain in his descendants over and over until the true king or the one that it really belongs to comes. Now that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And then finally, until tribute comes to him. That's what's actually written in the ESV. How do we get that one? Well, again, those same Hebrew consonants 
Um, Hebrew originally was written with just consonants. There were no vowels. And then later on, uh, between 500 and 900 AD, a group called the Masorites added vowels because they were concerned that the language was going to be lost and nobody would ever know how to pronounce it anymore. So they they added vowels, but they didn't want to stick anything into the, the actual text, so they added little dots and lines above and below. So if you take what's written and you change some of those dots and lines, then you get the translation until tribute comes to him. To him, tribute is bought or smoothed out. It would be until tribute comes to him. So that's where you get the three things. This has been widely discussed, widely debated by a lot of good scholars, and nobody is in agreement. But I wanted you to know that's why the Bible has such different ways of translating that phrase. It's not because the Bible is inconsistent. It's because the original language could go different ways there. So we're given all three. Now here's the good news. It doesn't affect the meaning at all. The meaning remains the same. The the meaning is that the the scepter, the kingship, is going to remain in this tribe all the way down until King David and ultimately King Jesus. So it means the same thing. Just a little bit different translation. So it's a messianic prophecy. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Of course, David and Jesus. David uh, is going to have the obedience of all the peoples of Israel. Jesus, of course... The the obedience of of all peoples belongs to him rightly. Jesus isn't just king of the Christians. He is the rightful Lord of all. So it works on a Davidic level. It also works on a messianic level, talking about Jesus. Verses 11 and 12, the coming of the Messiah, this, this great king, will mean a time of abundance. So many grapes you could tie up a donkey to one of the choicest vines and he starts eating it, and, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, sure, go ahead. I've got tons of choice vines. So many that are in, it's in an abundance. So much wine, people could wash their clothes in it, treat it like laundry water. Who needs to go down to the river? Just wash it in this wine, we've got tons. It doesn't matter, an abundance. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth are whiter than milk, a picture that hints of physical excellence, of course, which Jesus was. He was the ultimate unblemished lamb for the sacrifice. Verse 13, we move on to Zebulun. He shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and their border shall be at Sidon. He shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and shall become a haven for ships. Now we've got a problem here, because if you look in the back of your Bible, if you've got one of those Bibles that has a bunch of maps, and if it has four or five of them, they usually have a map of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you look at one of those maps, you're going to see Zebulun is this little kind of oval or egg shape, and it's landlocked. It's right in the middle. It doesn't touch either the Sea of Galilee or the Mediterranean Sea, although it's in between both. So it's between the seas, but it doesn't border them which doesn't seem to make sense because right here it says they shall dwell at the shore of the sea and they shall become a haven for ships. The problem with the maps that we have in the back of our Bibles is that they are man-made. They're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Right? The text is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The maps in the back of your Bible are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. The maps in the back of our Bibles are based on archaeological evidence 
finds, digs, based on biblical cities that are mentioned in the Bible, and they're based on confirmed locations of some of those cities. Not all the locations listed in the Bible have been confirmed. There, there are lots of place names, especially in the Old Testament, where we're not exactly sure where those are. So the maps are based on the confirmed locations of some of those place names. So the boundaries and the colored areas you see in those maps are not infallible. Scripture is, the maps are not. Now the problem is, for us, um, you know, somebody might raise a hand and say, well, I don't know, Pastor Kerr, I mean, those guys that make the maps are pretty smart. They are. They are. But we've got the text that says, shall dwell at the shores of the sea, shall become a haven for ships. Kind of difficult to do if you're landlocked. If only there was something to help us out that would bring some clarity to, to this topic. Every other prophecy is spot on. It would be very unlikely that one would be not spot on. And let's add to the fact that this is scripture. So it's got to be true. Let's see if we can figure this out. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, if you remember when we went through Revelation, we talked about Josephus a lot. He had a lot of insight on the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Josephus, who's a pretty accurate Jewish historian, lived in the first century, says this, the tribe of Zebulon's lot included the land which lay as far as the lake of Gennesareth, which is another word, another name for Sea of Galilee, and that which belonged to Carmel and the sea, meaning the Mediterranean Sea. So we've got a first century Jewish historian saying, yes, the land of Zebulun, its allotment, its territory, went from Sea of Galilee to the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, that seems to correspond with what we're reading right here. Uh, the Midrash, which is Jewish commentary on Old Testament and Jewish tradition, describes the banner of Zebulun. These tribes had banners that they carried around, standards. They, they describe the banner as a ship under full sail on a white background. Again, strange that you'd have a banner with a ship under full sail if you were landlocked. Other Jewish writings attest to the members of Zebulun being fishermen and successful sea merchants. Again, rather puzzling if you're landlocked. Well, that's fine because it's non-biblical sources. Those are really helpful. and They seem to point to the validity and the, and the truth of what we got right here. But man, those maps in the back don't have it next to the seas. If only there was some piece of biblical evidence that we could turn to. Deuteronomy 33, 18 and 19. Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Seas, plural. Sea of Galilee, Mediterranean. Matthew 4, 13 and 14. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea. So let's check that reference. Let's go to Isaiah 9.1. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. So we also have an internal testimony from Scripture that places the land of Zebulun and its borders, the tribal allotment, touching the sea. So in the end, we have to ask ourselves, are Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Matthew all wrong, and the map in the back of our Bible that's made on infallible information correct? Or is maybe the man-made Bible map incorrect and 
Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Matthew are all true. Yeah, that's, that's pretty easy. Um, this is a prophetic utterance. It was fulfilled. Their territory reaches the seas. The maps in our Bibles need to be updated. Verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey. Saw that a resting place was good, so he bowed his shoulder to bear, became a servant and forced labor. Strong, but not very motivated. His goal is to find a good resting place, a place to settle down, take it easy. And Issachar does receive a tribal allotment of fertile land, but according to extra-biblical sources, did eventually become servants of the indigenous peoples. Verses 16 and 17, uh, Dan, reference to judging. Dan, of course, would bring forth Samson, one of the more high-profile judges from the book of Judges. And then that language about serpent in the way, viper by the path, bites the horse's heel so the rider falls backwards. That's military, that's symbolic language for military might, success in battle, strength in battle. And then in verse 18, it almost seems out of place. Uh, Some have said this is just kind of a spontaneous outburst from Jacob, unconnected to the blessings. But I think a better fit would be that it was inserted in between here and that he spoke it in, in between these two because each one of these kind of bookends uh, are talking about military success, battle, uh, superiority, and and, uh, ability to feed enemies, that type of thing. And it's a reminder that the ultimate victory is from the Lord, not from strength of might, battle, and the power of the sword, and certainly not in the power of man. Verse 19, this is one verse for Gad, indicating they would not be afraid to fight back when assaulted, Raiders shall raid Gab, but he shall raid at their heels. And sure enough, this allotment of land for the tribe of Gad is on the east side of Jordan. Again, more exposed uh, to the enemies. First Chronicles calls the men of Gad, quote, mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelle upon the mountains. So that, again, the prophecy came true. It was fulfilled. Verse 20, one verse for Asher. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Sounds good. Uh, Nothing wrong with that. We know who to go to if we want to be invited over for dinner. And by the way, yes, this one sounds good. Good food. They're all good. They're all good. Military strength, victory over enemies, um, abundance, agricultural uh, success and, and abundance. Uh, the, the, gener- the multiplication of, of descendants, um, many children, expanding families, all of these are good things. All of these are highly prized in the ancient Near East, and they were practical for survival. You needed to be able to defend against enemies. You needed to have big families. You needed to be able to bring in the crops at the end of the harvest. So they were important. Verse 21, one verse for Naphtali, a general blessing of fruitfulness. Again, children, descendants. And then verses 22 through 26. This is the one, this is Joseph, and this is the one that I said is just exploding with with language about being blessed. Judah and Joseph both get five verses. So they, by a long shot, get get a big chunk of the blessings together. Judah being the line that, that David and Jesus eventually come from, and then Joseph getting this super exploding uh, language about being blessed. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, so vines are are a symbol of growth and and life. 
and vitality is next to water, even better, even better. A description of, of Joseph's current prosperity in Egypt. His branches run over the wall. He's so prosperous it can't be contained. He, he's just expanding his, his, his life and prosperity is all over the place. And then that line, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely. This is a, a reference of what had happened to him. This is talking about the hardships he endured. Remember his brothers, uh, Potiphar's wife, remember that accusation? The years spent in the prison pit. Um, and yet, it says his bow remained, or his bow remained unmoved, so he remained unwavering. He kept that North Star faith in believing that his God was going to deliver him. He refused to believe that that dream was not going to come true, that the, the revelation from God was actually going to happen. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. And then we see the words shepherd, stone of Israel, and you see those are capitalized, those are referencing God. That's why they're capitalized. God was the source of Joseph's strength. It was the Lord who got him through the pit. It was the Lord who raised him up. It was the Lord who brought him into success at Egypt. And then all the, the next verses are just one after another. Here's this exploding language. Heaven above, deep beneath. That's total, encompassing, large, wide. Blessing, uh, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. Fruitful and numerous offspring and descendants. And all good things. The blessing of your father, mighty beyond the blessing of my parents, to the bounties of the everlasting hills. Joseph will be blessed greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. And they're yet to come to Joseph and his descendants. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. All these, this exploding language of, of blessing, uh, it all goes on his head. And in front of his brothers, he is vindicated. From this final fatherly blessing from Jacob, he says, yes, he was set apart from his brothers. That dream did come true. We did bow down to him. And then verse 27, Benjamin, almost a letdown after Joseph, just a little bit at the end here. Uh, one more, Benjamin, a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. The tribe of Benjamin would gain the reputation of becoming a warrior tribe. Their allotment was right on the, the border of northern and southern territories in Israel, so it was a hot spot. It was a continual battle zone throughout much, much of Israel's history. And then verse 28, we noted this at the beginning, each with the blessing suitable to him, personalized. It's got their name on it. It's just for them. Verses 29 and 32, one last command, bury me in the cave that Abraham bought. Same place that everybody else is buried. Now at the end of 47, he already made Joseph swear to him that he would be buried there, and now he brings it up again. That tells us that it's pretty important. It's pretty important to Jacob. In a land that was not theirs, but that they had a burial place in, he wanted to make sure he was buried in that plot. Why? Because the land was promised to them by God. Because the land had been promised to them and their descendants. The word of God had spoken and he believed it. He believed it. It was Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob's um, 
legacy way of testifying and witnessing to the fact every time they thought of where their, their, their ancestors' bodies were buried, it would be them speaking from the grave saying, I believe that this land is going to be ours. It's not ours right now. It won't be for another 400 years, but I believe it, and I want you to believe it too. And so he makes a promise to be buried in the same cave where everybody else is buried. Verse 33, And Jacob died, breathed his last, gathered to his people. All those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be gathered with everyone else who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For them, they look forward to the Messiah. They look forward to the promised deliverer. For us, we look back to to the cross. But our faith object is the same. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe in him. We believe and put our faith and trust in him. And God counts us righteous. It doesn't matter when we've lived or when we will live. We look forward. They look forward to the Messiah. We look back. In Christ, God deals graciously with people. And I want you to know, if you're here this morning, and if you want assurance that God is going to deal graciously with you, place your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the message of the Bible. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to God's Son for our provision. The Gospel, among other things, has been called the Great Exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. That's the exchange that's going on. When we put our faith in Jesus, he takes on us the penalty for our sin. He he took that at the cross. We take on his righteousness. And let's not fool ourselves thinking we don't have any sin. We're all sinful. The, The law of God shows us, it reveals, it uncovers our sin. We've broken all ten commandments, each one of us. And that that makes us turn and look for a savior. We need someone. We need a source of righteousness, of perfectness that we don't have in order to be acceptable to God. Jesus Christ is the only one who has it. He's the only one who never broke God's law. Not one impure thought, not one sinful deed. His heart motivations every time he did anything throughout his entire life, it was with pure, holy heart motivations. None of us can say that. None of us. We need that righteousness, and through faith it is imputed or credited to us. It's the great exchange. He takes our sin and the penalty, we get his righteousness. If you want God to deal graciously with you, turn to his son for that great exchange. So God deals with each one of us personally, and for those in Christ he deals graciously. There's two things there. Let's deal with number two. For in Christ he he deals graciously. If that great exchange is has taken place, then he deals graciously with us. He does not give us our due. He does not give us what we justly deserve. Instead, he graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He deals graciously. For those not in Christ, God deals justly. For those who who do not turn in faith to Jesus Christ, he deals justly. He does give them what is due we look at Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what that verse is talking about. For those not in Christ, 
They receive the wages or what is due for their sin, which is eternal death, eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. But the free gift of God is eternal life. It's that great exchange. He deals graciously with those who have repented and believed because they're found in Christ. So God deals graciously with those who are in Christ. He deals with each one of us personally. Each one of us, no matter who we are. If you headed up to Gurney and you went to Great America and you went to the gift shop and you pulled out a mug and it had your name on it, yes, that's a personalized mug. But I think we all understand when they manufactured that mug, they didn't make it for you. They made a lot of those mugs. And anybody with the same name or even not with that name could have walked in and bought that same mug and took it home. And it would have been their mug, not your mug. Not so with God. That's so with God. We have a personalized eternity that is for us and for us alone, that is suitable to each one of us. It's unique as our fingerprint. Each one of us has that personalized eternity waiting. It's, ours, ours is more like that, that friend t-shirt. Remember at the beginning that, that both had their picture on it, their name on it, the places, the year. Kind of hard to mess that one up. You couldn't give that t-shirt to somebody else and have it work. It was personalized. That's how God's personal eternity is working for us. Let's deal with the, the ugly side first. Those who are not in Christ. Luke twelve forty seven. Now the context of this is Jesus telling a parable. And, and the context of this particular verse is he's talking about those who are unbelievers. Those who have, who have disobeyed the king. Disobeyed the master. Okay, so it's not like we've got one and one of the other, one that obeys and one doesn't. No, these are both within the context of someone who disobeys what the master requires. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So there are unique, personalized eternities waiting. And this makes sense, right? This is just. It does not make sense that we place um, the average unbelieving uh, Chicago sur- suburbanite mom or dad who, who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ along with Hitler. Okay? The, 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 the deeds done well in life are, are not the same in severity. The responsibility of uh, the, the the, um, the amount of light given and the amount of um, uh, weight, uh, personal responsibility on, on these people are, are differently and the outcome is different in response to their actions and their consequences and leadership. It's just different. You can't group everybody together and say, that's just. Everybody receives the same punishment. That, that would not be just. That would be unjust. No, it's unique. It's personalized, even in, in hell. But for believers personalized as well. Now remember, for us, we don't have to worry, for those in Christ, we don't have to worry about punishment. We don't have to worry about condemnation. This is nothing to fear. When we stand before Jesus Christ, we have absolutely nothing to fear. But it will still be personalized. It will still be personalized. It's a personalized eternity. With Jacob and his sons, I mean, they're all gathered together, but they each got something unique to them. They had their name on it. Okay? Gather around. Listen very carefully. Time to settle up. 
We're going to have that day. We're going to have that day where we're gathered and it's time to settle up with the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is talking about believers. And we know that from the context. Again, nothing to fear, but it is something to know and apply. It is something to know and apply. It is scripture. We should be keeping it in the forefront of our our minds as we go through life. Let's look at the context of this. So we know we're talking about believers. This is 2 Corinthians written to the church, to believers. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Did you hear the context there? And the four, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we're all going to arrive at that moment in time where we personally are standing before Jesus Christ. How, how then shall we live? It says... So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. That's where it leads us. Knowing there's going to be a personalized eternity waiting for us, our aim is to please the Lord. What's one thing that you could do this week to please the Lord? Something that's not part of your regular schedule, something that's not part of your normal routine. What's one thing you could say, you know what, I'm going to do fill in the blank. I'm going to please the Lord this week. Wilbur Chapman, who wrote the hymn, Jesus, What a Friend of Sinners, said this, anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work difficult is wrong for me. And I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. This simple rule may help you find a safe path for your feet along life's road. That makes sense, doesn't it? So not only is there something that we can do this week on the positive end, on the proactive side, to please the Lord, also let's ask ourselves this question. What's something that we need to turn away from this week? And now and from now on, what's something we need to cut out from our schedule, from our daily routine? What's one thing that we need to turn away from because it's a hindrance to following Christ? It dims our fervency. It dims our our eagerness to please Him. Let's get it out. Jacob's personalized blessings to his sons were uniquely tailored for each one of them. Likewise, each person's eternal future is going to be uniquely tailored and suitable for each one of us. Now here's the difference. Once spoken, these could not be taken back. When, once, once he pronounced these blessings, and we saw that earlier in Genesis as well. Remember, that's why it was so important to get that first blessing. When Esau and Jacob, when all that trickery and deception was going on, oh no, I've already blessed him. It's too late. It's already out. The blessing's out there. Same thing here. Once these blessings on, uh, that, that Jacob gave to his sons were out, that's it. Our eternal, personalized, 
allotments have not been given yet. We're not standing before the Lord, which means we have time still to please him. Our eternal futures have not yet begun, praise God. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, now's the time. Turn to him in faith so that God may deal graciously with you. Repent and believe. Get connected to a Bible-believing church. Start growing. For those of us in Christ, as long as you have breath in your lungs, you have time to please him. You have time to live for Christ. So now is the time to throw off anything that's hindering us, to lean into aggressive discipleship. We only have one life to live. And at the end of the life, our lives, we will stand before Jesus and he will call us by name and give us a personalized eternity. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us, for instructing us. Father, we thank you that, that each time we look at scripture, there, there's something new there. there there's more understanding. There's a, there's a better in, insight on, on how to live rightly with you. And Father, it would not be right if we simply heard this and then let it come in one ear and wash out the other without allowing it impact us. Father, we ask that we would apply your word. Father, let it be our heart's desire to please you in all things. Amen.